took me a while to make it up here because I was trying to high-five all the kids we had back there today. <coughs> We're always thankful for, for kids in the service and for the rest of you, too. Well, memories. Uh, going back to uh, when Heather and I first met, we met at, at college, Christian Heritage College, now called San Diego Christian College. Um, good times, um, really a pivotal time spiritually in my life, and probably learned a few things in my classes, I imagine, as well. But when you live in a, a compact environment like that, um, you get to know some interesting people, uh, some of the other students and uh, some of the people that just work on campus. And uh, there was just one security guard on campus who was, I think we would have described him as a grumpy old man. And uh, he was just kind of grouchy about everything. He manned the security booth. And, and he would say often something like this, uh, this school wouldn't be half bad if it weren't for the students. And some might say a similar thing about the church. This church would be really great if it weren't for, you know, the people, you know, including the pastor. Um, we're, honestly, we're just a bunch of uh, forgiven sinners, and that's the fact of life. One day in eternity, we will have a churchtopia. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be uh, harmonious. We'll have a more fully full understanding, and it will be such a glorious delight. In the meantime, we're just people, <laughs> forgiven people, but people indeed. And when you pack them all together in a church, sometimes you run across some complicated situations. And honestly, uh, as a church leader, sometimes I don't just know the best way to uh, to love and honor somebody. You know, what, what's the best way to, to minister to this person? What do they, they really need? Do they need a hug? Do they need a home-cooked meal? Do they need a lecture? Do they need a kick in the pants? You know, sometimes it's not immediately obvious, especially in some really complicated situations. And, uh, but no matter what the situation is, I think today we're going to see that in the most complicated situations, God wants you to treat each other with honor. That's like the overarching uh, principle that we're going to dwell on uh, this morning, is God wants you and I to treat each other with honor, to value one another, to respect one another. So for those of you who've been with us, you know we're studying the book of First Timothy. And uh, last week we saw that uh, after a long time of kind of building up to uh, laying some groundwork, um, Paul started telling Timothy all these things to do in order to get to the heart of the matter of just training daily to be a spiritually minded person, to, to depend on Christ and develop the, um, godliness in the life. And so now he shifts the corner to uh, how do you deal with people when, when it's kind of complicated in the church? And uh, even, even spiritually minded people can be stumped at what's the best way to approach uh, these situations. So this, this morning we have uh, four examples of uh, what I'm going to call complicated situations in the church. And we'll see uh, what uh, the Bible says uh, how to address these. And then at the end we'll take just a few minutes to consider some overarching principles that kind of work for all the complicated uh, scenarios in our lives. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And this morning, we're going to cover a, a little bit bigger section than usual. We're going to do all of chapter 5 in the first couple verses of chapter 6. So, hang on tight. 
Okay, so scenario number one, complicated situation right off the bat is this. It's complicated when people need correcting. (laughs) And what do we do when people need correcting? Honor them with encouragement, but not rebuking. Uh, The chapter starts off like this in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Okay, so doing word studies, and this word rebuke, it literally means to, to strike somebody physically, you know, to slap them. But by extension, it's, it's a way of talking to somebody that feels like you got slapped. You know, it's a, a verbally harsh or um, demeaning, disrespectful, um, that, that kind of tone that kind of uh, voice you'd use with somebody, that's a, that's a rebuking rather than encouraging. Now, this word uh, uh, that's translated encouragement is translated a lot of different ways in the New Testament because it has a kind of a wide range of meaning. And quite literally, it means to call alongside it sometimes means to implore, to urge, to appeal to, but it also means to comfort, to console. And I, I like the word encourage because maybe you could say it's to give courage to. And I mentioned this before several weeks back. This, this is idea of what can I say or do to give this person the courage they need to do the right thing. That's what encouragement is. We might say that the goal is not to put them in their place, but it's to help them out of their place. So you're in the church. You see somebody that's that's going down a path that's that's sinful, that's destructive, that's harmful. Um, Your job is not to come to them and and chew them out, give them the verbal slapping, but it's to say or do whatever possible to give them the courage to get out of that situation and back to following the Lord. I like this idea of calling alongside, coming alongside, because it means to draw closer rather than further. Because sometimes when we see somebody just really messing up, our tendency is sometimes to pull away. Maybe it's to ostracize. Or maybe it's just to kind of ignore, pretend it's not really happening. Maybe just, you know, it'll work itself out. I don't want to deal with that. It's too complicated. But to encourage, to come alongside, to call alongside is like coming, drawing, pushing into their life, putting an arm around and saying, hey, I just want to give you the courage to do what's right. How do we do that? The rest of the verse and the following says, well, correct as, or encourage as you would a father, father, or younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So how do we correct each other when we need correcting? Like family. Do we treat each other as family? And when we treat each other as family, it means we are putting the relationship before the problem. The person is bigger than the problem because we're family. 
Um, I, I love this line from uh, 10th Avenue North that says, you are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. And that's the approach we take with one another. Uh, this thing that's going on in your life, I, I can't ignore it because I love you. And, it, and it's, it's destructive and it'll, it'll be bad. It goes down, you know, the end is bad for it. But, but you're more than that. You are family. I, I thank God daily that my kids are, you know, walking with the Lord. But if they weren't and they did crazy things, uh, I still love them because <laughs> they're my kids. Here's a little mom quote. I love you no matter what you do. I may not like it. We may argue and disagree, but I will always love you. Love, Mom. I think this is the sentiment of family, when we treat each other as family. And so when people need correcting in the church, and there will be situations where that happens because, again, we're just uh, a bunch of people that are, that are uh, regular people but forgiven by Christ, um, the guiding principle is to treat as family and draw near instead of pulling away. When I was a, a teenager, my, uh, my father was struggling with an uh, ongoing addiction, and we were very involved in church during that time. Um, he was in uh, several roles at the church, and we served in, in various ways, um, but he had this ongoing addiction, and I think that he would say that the church kind of ignored that as long as they could, and when it was too obvious to ignore, then they pulled away and didn't know what to do with him. So it was a ignoring and then a ostracizing rather than a drawing near, rather than a coming alongside as a paraclete would. So we treat each other as family. We draw near rather than pulling away, and that's the first and uh, Real typical complicated situation in church is when somebody uh, needs redirecting. So treat them as family, encouraging without rebuking. Okay, second complicated scenario we see in church is when people have is ongoing needs. Well, how do we honor them? We honor them with care, but not enabling. Or we might say not perpetuating from the very beginning of the church uh the church took care of each other we we see the birth of the church in acts and how things just started and what what they were characterized by and this great summary statement of what the early church did is at the end of acts 2 and here's here's a couple verses out of that it says acts 2 uh, verses 44 and 45 says and all who believed they were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this is what a mark of the church was. Hey, we take care of each other. We, uh, that person has a need. Okay, I'll sell this and, and help with that need. There were, were always people with ongoing physical needs. And in particular concern was the widows, especially in that culture. Who was going to care for them? There wasn't a system to help. And so a little later in Acts uh, chapter 6, we see that the first deacons, that kind of role was invented, so to speak, uh, specifically to care for the widows. 
and to appoint a group of people to oversee to make sure that they got cared for. And, and that group of people is Paul's focus here in this chapter. Um, you'll see in uh, verse 3, he starts off saying, Honor the widows who are truly widows. Okay, we're introduced to this word honor here, and we'll see it several times in this passage. And it, and it means to, to ascribe worth to something, to revere it, to show the intrinsic value of something. So it's this making an assessment. You look at that person and you say, this person has value. They have worth. They have um, just this uh, intrinsic uh, substance because they're an image bearer of God. The sanctity of each person. And so Paul says, you see these widows, honor them with their intrinsic value, ascribe worth to them. And sometimes it's used in kind of a technical sense of based on that value, then support them financially, you know, take care of their needs. So in this section, we'll see why it's complicated to honor widows sometimes and, uh, and others with ongoing needs. But in the midst of that, how do we honor them? It's a little bit of a longer section. Um, so uh, just... Uh, bear with me as we read it and see if you can see what some of the complications are and what the suggestions are. Uh, we're going to read chapter 5, verses 3 to 16. And it says this. <clears throat> Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent, she's dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll the younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they really should not. So, I encourage the younger widows to marry and bear children and take care of their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Okay. He says a lot about widows and some of the complicated things and some of the, the limitations on this. And so I, I like to just summarize. Assist the true widows. And what is a true widow? Kind of a summary is someone who doesn't have family or other means of support. So this is somebody who's truly, they don't have anywhere else to turn. And second, the true widow, he calls it, is someone who's devoted to the faith, not someone that whenever... Uh, you know, the, the money runs out, then they all of a sudden get religion, and they come and, you know, see what they could get. It's, it's someone who is devoted to the Lord. It says, hey, take care of these people. 
honor them. But why all these limitations? Well, some of it's just logistics. There's only so much um, uh, funds to help. So it, it has to be limited. They say, you know, you do not overburden the church family. But second, I really think it's dishonoring to help somebody who doesn't actually need help. So I think in this passage, we get this picture of if somebody needs help, man, the church should be the first ones to jump in and, and help. If somebody doesn't really need help, then you're actually dishonoring them by perpetuating the situation they're in. So when I was at, um, at our church in Escondido, uh, the pastors would take turns being what they called the pastor on duty, the, the POD, they called it. And uh, since it's a large church, you know, several thousand people, um, there, a lot of calls come in any given day. So, uh, so the pastors would take turns, and you'd be on for 24 hours um, uh, to get after-hours calls or whatever. And a lot of those people that come in with financial needs. And so uh, one of the first things we do with somebody is have them uh, sit down and, and look at a, a budget together. You know, how, how can we help this, you know, not happen each month uh, and help somebody walk them through that process? So that's one kind of scenario. But other times it's just, hey, somebody just needs help. Sometimes they need help long term. And we as a church need to figure out how to best love and honor people that need ongoing help. The focus here, again, is, is widows, but, um, but who else in our world <laughs> needs ongoing help often? Who else is in a similar scenario? Well, our, our passage today we read in Psalm mentioned these three kinds of people, and, and they're lumped together often in the Old Testament, uh, especially in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And the uh, Old Testament often talks about widows, orphans, and sojourners. Sojourner, uh, Hebrew word, gar, which is, uh, this is from Holiday's lexicon. It says, someone who either alone or with his family leaves his village and tribe because of war, famine, pestilence, blood guilt, etc., and seeks shelter and sojourn somewhere else. Um, what, what do we call that today? We don't usually say like, oh, there's some sojourners. Um, you can say it out loud if it comes to anything comes to mind. We call that a refugee now. Um, so widows, someone who has lost a spouse, orphans, someone without parents, a refugee, somebody that is, you know, here because they have they and they have no support group. They've they've fled from somewhere where there was either war, famine, pestilence, etc., seeking shelter. Um, here, here's just a few passages. Deuteronomy 10. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and He loves the sojourner or refugee, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 14. And the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, they shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Deuteronomy 24, 17. I hear some pages. Some people are trying to catch up. That's impressive. <clears throat> you shall not pervert the justice due to the refugee or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. 
when you reap your harvest in your field, you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, so that uh, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the let's just say it together for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not sh- strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Okay, so what, what do these three have in common is often there's just no support network. There's nowhere else for them to turn. And so when these people are in our church, we wrap our arms around them and we help them. So the guiding principles are for those who are truly in need, we demonstrate their intrinsic value by assisting with their physical needs. And that is why on especially first Sunday of the month, we take uh, the, or we suggest contributing to the deacon's fund. That's exactly what it's for, is to help people with these kinds of needs. For those who are not truly in need, we honor their intrinsic value by respectfully not <laughs> assisting them. Um, years ago, uh, our family, we had a foster daughter. She was a, a pregnant teenager, and uh, as she was getting closer to... Um, her due date, and also to, to aging out of um, some aspects of the system. Um, there was a meeting with various social workers and, and uh, departments, whatever, to kind of figure out, help her transition to the next stage. And uh, you could ask Heather the details of this, because she was at that meeting and I wasn't. But what was communicated back to me is there's, uh, everyone was trying to, to help uh, this young girl figure out how she could uh, make the most of the system at the next stage. And finally, the person leading the meeting uh, kind of puts it to a halt and says, you know, the, the goal is not to keep her in the system forever. And so it was kind of, oh, oh, yeah, I guess we have, you know, different ideas going on there. So that, that really wouldn't help her to, as, you know, a 16 or 17-year-old girl to say, hey, here's your whole life. You're going to be on the system when, when she's, you know, healthy and uh, et cetera. People do need help, and, uh, and she needed help, but not all the same kinds. So we honor people with ongoing needs by giving to them. And those who don't need the help, we honor them by not giving it to them. Okay, so there's two of the really complicated situations in church, people with ongoing needs, people who need correcting. Uh, the third really complicated situation, uh, you're looking at him. When people are leading, <laughs> honor them with support, but not partiality. First Timothy five seventeen says this: Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Give the pastor double honor. You know, take care of him. Here's here's two disclaimers with that. So this is written by Paul who is, uh, I, I think, a pastor-teacher gifting was part of what he did. But uh, we might think, oh, well, this is Paul's way of trying to uh, leverage on his benefit. But uh, then I thought of First Thessalonians, where it clearly says, this is Paul speaking to the Thessalonian church. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, uh, I believe, uh, 
Timothy is actually part of his team here. You remember our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul himself, he, uh, he for strategic reasons and maybe other reasons, he uh, did not accept any money from the church at Thessalonica. But instead, he labored day and night. He took a day job, so to speak, or a night job in order to support himself while he ministered. So this is not Paul making a rationale for, for Paul's sake. Um, a, a second disclaimer is, it's not that the pastor is worth more honor. It's just a, saying that that task of prayer in God's word is, is an honorable task and it's, it's worth supporting. So why is it complicated to know how to best honor, a pastor, uh, honor your pastor or other leaders in the church? Okay, this is uh, our second big chunk today is... Uh, Chapter 5, verses 18 to 25. And it says this. Why? For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And I do like to be referred to as an ox. (laughs) Not really. And it also says the labor deserves its wages. So do not admit a charge against an elder. He's like a church leader, except on evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in that sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. A little parenthesis. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others, they appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. <clears throat> so what is going on here? It's complicated because he says, treat the pastor with special honor, and then dot, 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 don't treat him with any partiality. Like, well, those sound like conflicting things. I think it's saying, you know, take care of him. That's right and good. But don't be enamored with your leadership to an extent that you um, don't hold them to the same standard as everybody else. Don't uh, ignore things in his life. Don't think that any Christian leader is untouchable on the one hand it warns against hasty accusations and a process but don't sweep things under the rug don't excuse so here's some ways that this uh kind of sometimes goes wrong one one way is um is the not being honored part is i i think sometimes we um we think we call it bivocational um Christian workers or um, or tent makers sometimes where where a minister will be doing some kind of other work and then also doing um, work in the church or at a missionary field. Sometimes that's totally necessary. Sometimes that's totally strategic. Sometimes other in other countries, that's the only way you can really um, get in and have an impact. There's lots of reasons for that. But it shouldn't be the standard. I went to school with a bunch of guys uh, in seminary who were already pastoring churches. 
full-time students, sometimes doing another job plus a ministry job. And I, I guarantee, and they would admit, that their ministry of prayer and the word would suffer. There, there's only so many hours <laughs> in the day. And so I, I think Paul's saying, you know, take care of your ministers so they can minister the word to you. Okay, here's the other way it could go wrong is when we don't confront, when we look at our leaders with, with partiality. Um, in Dave Carter's book, uh, Torn Asunder, he tells this tragic but true story of a church where the pastor had such sway over the people that he went unchallenged. They were impressed with his leadership, with his preaching, and they felt he could do no long, do no wrong. This pastor ended up having multiple overlapping affairs with women in the church. And Carter writes, Even when word of his behavior leaked to the inner circle of staff, they overlooked and ignored it. After all, they had been conditioned to accept everything he said as right. Uh, eventually, things were made known, were made public, and everything came crashing down, crashing in. But how, how sad for a church leadership team to, to see that things are not right and to just kind of sweep that under the rug. Paul's saying, don't, don't let that happen. Hold your leaders to the same standard. The best way to honor your pastor and other church leaders is to give them the support they need and to give them the accountability they need. Okay, one more complicated scenario that we might face in the church, and then after that we'll just briefly talk about some overarching uh, principles. When people are over you, honor them with diligence and not disrespect. What happens when uh, your boss goes to the same church you do? Or more so, what happens if you are in a, uh, a first century uh, slave culture and your master goes to the same church you go to? That really ramps it up a notch, doesn't it? Okay, look at the beginning of chapter 6. We'll just look at the first two verses and we'll stop um, at that part of the passage. Verse uh, 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all, what's that word again? Honor. That guy that has his thumb over you like that, see his intrinsic value. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. So, when you come, I, I think this is a, uh, maybe even more so um, an issue in a smaller town like this, where, um, where in a room this size, we have all sorts of interconnected relationships, um, you know, outside of church. You know, whether it's your, your physician or your, your someone in a restaurant you often go to or people who deliver your mail or whatever. We all have these interconnected relationships. And so what happens when you have a relationship like this outside of church and then you come in, you're sitting in the same pew together. It can be complicated. A boss, law enforcement, a coach, <laughs> a teacher, someone in, in public office. 
maybe in some kind of scenario that makes your life difficult, and here you are sitting in the pew together. I think in a lot of cases, this is your own family. Maybe things are harsh at home between parents and children, and then you come here and sit in church together. It could really ruin the dynamic of what God intends this place to be when there's, when there's that uh, dissension and that feeling. And the, the answer for all of it is to show honor toward one another, to look at each other with intrinsic value. So in, in this situation, uh, how specifically? One is a don't be disrespectful. And second, serve all the better. Might look at it this way. There's these relationships outside of church. They set up this complicated thing, this difference here, and then you bring that into church, and it makes it hard here. I think what's uh, happening in this passage is suggesting what's true in here already of all brothers, sisters in the Christ Bring that out there. Because that person is your brother or sister, you treat them like that out there. You work for your boss like he's your brother in Christ. You, you treat your, your parents, you treat your children as, as ones who are, are connected in a brotherhood, sisterhood, and, and God's family with love and tenderness and respect so there might be situations in this room where you need to have a real get real conversation and uh and maybe make things right maybe there's a relationship outside the church that's brought into the church and made things complicated maybe you need to go and just say to your to your boss or to your employee um hey i'm sorry i've been i've made it hard (laughs) for you I'm sorry I've been a harsh boss. I'm sorry I've been a, uh, a lazy student. I'm sorry I, I've been a, a disrespectful child. I'm, I'm sorry, just forgive me for being a, an overbearing parent or whatever, whatever it is and just bring that out into the open and make it right before God. Treat that person with intrinsic value and honor. And when you bring that back into the church, what a world of difference it makes. Something rather complicated becomes rather straightforward and beautiful. So these are four really different kinds of, of ways that church can get complicated. You know, when you have real people uh, in church together. Um, but, but I'm sure there's lots more we could think of. Some may be rather crazy. Um, so here are some overarching uh, thoughts um, to conclude with. Principles for honoring all kinds of complicated people like you and like me. And first, treat everyone in church, even the really complicated situations, like family. And uh, we saw that in several places in the passage, especially uh, the first verse of both chapter 5 and of chapter 6. Remember chapter 5 where, uh, how do you encourage as a father, as a brother, as a mother, as a sister, all this family language. Ch- chapter 6, uh, why, why treat uh, your believing master with respect on the ground that they are brothers? When we, when we put family, talking about this family, as, as a core um, 
identity. It makes a world of difference. Okay, the second principle throughout is treat with intrinsic value. That's that word honor. We keep coming back to it. Chapter 5, verse 3, honor. Verse 17, honor. Chapter 6, verse 1, honor. Honor, honor. Look at each other. Who is the most complicated person to you in this room? Don't, don't really look around right now. That, that is awkward. Just think about them and then think, wow, that person is an image bearer of God. They are, you know, if they've trusted Christ as their Savior, then we're family. We're family. Okay, third, third thing. Treat everyone in church, even the complicated situations, in a way that reflects well on God. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1, uh, the reason given for you know, respecting your masters, is so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So the, the rationale is, by the way you honor one another, God's name and God's church um, don't have a bad mark on them. And this is the point of it all, is that God is glorified. God's fame increases. God's name is, is revered. It's the reason for it all. So we say, our challenge is, for God's sake, honor one another. And I don't mean that idiomatically. I mean, really, for God's sake, honor one another. Treat each other with intrinsic value. Okay. I'd like everyone just to, to, to stretch uh, one arm for a minute by grabbing one of those little connect uh, cards out of the pew in front of you. Or I don't know what you guys do in the front row. Yeah, you reach around, I guess. Partly these are kind of new, so I just wanted to point them out to you. <coughs> we talked a lot about family today, and perhaps there's some people here that, that don't quite know what it means to be part of God's family through trusting in, in Jesus Christ. And uh, every week, that card's there, and we're here, and we want to just make that opportunity known. And if you want to use that card, you can just mark that little box there that says something like, um, I want to know more about being a Christian. And then give, give me some way that I can contact you, an email or a phone number or something, and uh, we'll get a hold of you on that. For some of you, uh, you may have been part of God's family for a really long time. Um, but uh, you're curious about becoming part of the uh, First Baptist Church uh, family by becoming a member, and there's a place on there where you can mark your interest in that. And, and soon, in the next few weeks, we'll be talking about uh, our next membership uh, class uh, here at the church and how you can kind of formally join uh, with uh, the church family here. Um, maybe just in the things we've talked about this morning and in the songs and in celebrating communion together, maybe there's just other decisions God is putting on your heart, and there's maybe something you want to let us know so we could just be praying for you. Um, you can use that card uh, every week, any week, for that reason. There's a space for some notes on the back of there. Um, and uh, always, if you're here visiting, we just would love to uh, be introduced to you, and that's a way you can let us know uh, you're here as well. Um, if any of those things apply to you, if there's any other prayer requests or comments you'd like to make, uh, please please just use that card and straight in the back through those doors. I just actually yesterday, uh, while wearing my pajamas, I built a wood box 
to collect those. Um, I wasn't feeling real well, so um, to collect those, so you can just put them right in the back, and we'll and we'll take those and follow up with you. Um, and at minimum, we'll we'll pray for any prayer requests that you put in there. I wanted to let you know because if the Lord's working in your heart, I want you to give give you a tangible way to kind of seal that and follow up and, and speak with you. And, and also, since it's kind of new, I wanted to just let you be aware of that as well. So with all that said, let's honor one another. And uh, let me pray for that right now. God, you are worthy of all honor, of all glory, all majesty, praise. There is, there is nothing we could say to you or about you that would be overboard to describe how wonderful you are. And in your wisdom, you chose to place an imprint of that gloriousness on each one of us as image bearers of you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look around at each other and interact with each other and and talk with each other and live with each other, that we would see each other in that light as those who have intrinsic value because of you. And uh, I pray that all this in Jesus' precious name, amen.